we looked at the end of chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, and what we were looking at then is basically the foundation or the the institution of marriage. And in that study, you remember, we moved pretty fast and ended up having to quit just before um, I had an opportunity to read something I wanted to read. I mentioned I'd be reading this week. This was a statement made by the Southern Baptist Christians on June 17, 2015. You remember that uh, marriage has been a big topic in the news lately. It's one of the topics that ends up coming up repeatedly in our study because of where we're at in the study and, and because of what's been happening in the news. But this is nine days before the Supreme Court of the United States came out with their statement in redefining marriage. In this situation, in anticipation of such a ruling, uh, the Southern Baptist Christians put together a statement that they issued nine days before, and I, I think it bears reading here. Uh, just because it's such a strong and and good statement on what marriage should be and what marriage is in the eyes of God. So, as Southern Baptist Christians, we are committed to biblical faith and ethics. As a result, this body of believers stands on the authority of Scripture and God's truth as central to our lives. What the Bible says about marriage is clear, definitive, and unchanging. We affirm biblical, traditional, natural marriage as the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. The scripture's teaching on marriage is not negotiable. We stake our lives upon the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Consequently, we will not accept nor adhere to any legal redefinition of marriage issued by any political or judicial body, including the United States Supreme Court. We will not recognize same-sex marriages, in quotes. Our churches will not host same-sex ceremonies, and we will not perform such ceremonies. While we affirm our love for all people, including those struggling with same-sex attraction, we cannot and will not affirm the moral acceptability of homosexual behavior or any behavior that deviates from God's design for marriage. We also believe religious freedom is at stake within this critical issue, that our first duty is to love and obey God, not man. Therefore, we strongly encourage all Southern Baptist pastors, leaders, educators, and churches to openly reject any mandated legal definition of marriage and to use their influence to affirm God's design for life and relationships. As the nation's largest non-Catholic denomination with over 16 million members, we stake our very lives and future on the truth of God's word. We also join together to support those who stand for natural marriage in the corporate world, the marketplace, education, entertainment, media, and elsewhere with our prayers and influence and resources. I should say for myself, I don't attend a Southern Baptist church. I don't know that anybody does in this room, but the teaching of the Bible is clear, and I think they've encapsulated their position well in saying that this is what God's Word says about marriage. So I felt that strongly enough to read that and say that, you know, it doesn't matter what man says marriage is. It matters what God says marriage is. And here we have at the end of chapter 2 of Genesis the foundation or the structure of what God intended man, marriage to be, that between a man and a woman. One man, one woman, bound together for life. Moving on then to chapter 3. <laughs> the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, there's some passage of time. We don't know how much time there is that transpires between those two. But as the story begins to unfold that we'll look at, in uh, Genesis chapter 3, we'll see that there probably had to be a passage of at least some sort of time. I have today, this is rather uncommon for us, uh, a fill-in-the-blank exercise. And you can see on the board that I've got 
quite a few boxes on the board. Uh, not your normal, typical fill-in-the-blank. Sometimes you'll get a fill-in-the-blank that'll have, I don't know, three, four, or five different places that you would fill something in. But in this situation, you can see there are 40 boxes. I don't know if we're going to get through all 40. We'll try. We're going to move pretty fast. But today's topic that we're going to be talking about is uh, basically we're going to start Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and we're only going to get through the third word, <laughs> right? Now the serpent, all right? Now the serpent. So if I can start by writing something on the board, you can fill in your first box there, box number one. We're going to just put up here the serpent, all right? Because here we have the introduction of a new character in the storyline, all right? We've had God, and we've had God speaking in the plural in Genesis chapter 1. And then we had the creation of man and woman, among all the other creations, of course. Um, but man and woman being the pinnacle of, of the creation order. And then here we have an interesting introduction uh, of one of those creatures, the serpent. Now we could read further on, and we will in, in the following weeks, but just by way of a little bit of background history here regarding the serpent. Chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God has made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So here we have an interesting description. We have a creature, and he's able to talk, but what else do we know about him? We don't see much else from this passage anyway. So one of the things that I like to do is I like to find out what does the Bible say? I mean, because there's lots of myths and legends mixed in with truth and facts. What I see is the important part of it is finding out what God's word says before I rely on what some fanciful uh, description might say outside of what the Bible would teach. All right. So let's see what the Bible would teach. Regarding this serpent, then, we don't have much to work with. We have the word serpent. We have that he was a creature. Oh, you find out there's some intelligence involved because there's a there's dialogue between the serpent and the woman. But other than that, there's not a whole lot else that you can rest on, except if you jump up, let's jump up to uh, verse 14. Verse 14, what does that one say? So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Okay, so here the serpent's getting cursed. How about the next verse? What does the next verse say? And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Excellent. Thank you, BK. So here we have in this situation, we have a prophecy. This is actually, and we'll, obviously we're going to talk more about it when we get there, but this is the first prophecy of a Savior. All right, chapter 3, verse 15, the first prophecy of a Savior is incorporated in the curse that's given to the serpent for the role that he plays here in this story, okay? So the first prophecy of a Savior says what? It says that this serpent is going to end up attacking the Savior. Well, we know the end game. We know the Savior ends up getting killed because of what ends up happening. So right here, I'm going to put Savior Killer, all right? So if we're already trying to figure out who the serpent is... Uh, he's going to end up being Savior Killer. That might seem like an end game, but it's not. And by the way, that we read those words there where it says, uh, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. His attack on the Savior, even though kill sounds like bad, bad news, ends up being a lesser wound than what the serpent himself is going to end up experiencing. All right, the next passage that we want to look at, 2 Corinthians 11.3. 2 Corinthians 11.3, this will go in box 3. Somebody mind reading that? 
Only I am afraid that just as the serpent beguiled Eve with his craftiness, so your thoughts may be corrupted from the sin, from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So here we have another mention of the serpent as well. The serpent shows up here in Second Corinthians eleven three. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, ends up using this incident that ends up happening here in Genesis chapter three in making a point that he's uh, writing to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So he's writing in such a way that he's referring back to it. So we know it's the same serpent, but we don't have much else to go with from that passage alone. How about uh, the next one? Revelation 12, 9, and then the one after that is Revelation 20, verse 2. Who wants 12, 9? Sounds good. And 20, verse 2? Let's start with Revelation 20, verse 2. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Ah, okay, ancient serpent. And then how about 12.9? And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Okay, so in boxes 4 and 5, we have ancient serpent. The same serpent that's mentioned in the garden. So now we're getting a little bit more of a broader a broader perspective of who this serpent is. A little bit more on the character and nature of the serpent. But each of those passages also had other names associated with, it, with the serpent. So, Dave, what did yours have? Yours had three. We had dragon, devil, and Satan. All right. So here's what I'm doing. I'm connecting these boxes now. All right. So one of them is dragon... That'll go in box six. Devil, box seven. And what was the other one? Satan. Satan. Capital S? Yes. Yes, capital S. So here we have in boxes six, seven, and eight, we have dragon, devil, and Satan, all of which come out of this Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. So now we have the serpent being called by other names. The other names being dragon, devil, and Satan. So now we've got more to work with. The serpent that's in the garden is the same serpent who shows up in 2 Corinthians 11.3. He's the ancient serpent in Revelation 12.9. He's the ancient serpent that shows up in Revelation 20, verse 2. And that passage gives us these further three descriptions, dragon, devil, and Satan. But there's more than that, right? I mean, let's talk about dragon for a second. Dragon, go to uh, Revelation chapter 12, verses 4 and 17. Talking about the dragon. What does verse 4 say? His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And then verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So here we find out that the dragon, who's also the serpent, who's also the devil, and also Satan, ends up being the persecutor of Jews and Christians. Persecutor of Jews and Christians. But going back to Revelation 12, 9, that Steve had, Steve, would you read that one again? Because I think we're going to end up with two additional terms that Revelation 20, verse 2 doesn't have. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So you have thrown down in box 10. And in box 11, you have deceiver of the whole world. 
I'm going to draw some more connections here. So 10 and 11 come from Revelation 12.9 in addition to dragon, devil, and Satan. So 12.9 has thrown down, deceiver of the world, dragon, devil, and Satan. All right, moving on from there. Deceiver of the whole world. That also uh, is connected to ruler of this world. He's called the ruler of this world in John 12.31. And then over here, regarding thrown down, two passages that I commend to you to read later. Isaiah 14, 12 through 17. And this one over here is Ezekiel 28. Verses 11 through 19. And if we have time today, we might take a look at those really quickly. But uh, I have a feeling we're going to run out of time before we get there. All right. So right now, are you following the chart? Do you have the, you have the connecting lines in? <laughs> so we've got boxes 1 through nine or one through uh, 14 already filled in. But the serpent in the garden is the same one who ends up being uh, the killer of the Savior. 2 Corinthians 11.3, he shows up again there where Paul uses it to make a point. Revelation 12.9, he's called the ancient serpent, also, called, also described as being thrown down, the deceiver of the world, the dragon, the devil, and Satan. These three, dragon, devil, and Satan, all being connected also with the serpent in Revelation 20, verse 2. So now we're getting a more complete picture of who the serpent in the garden was. All right? Now this picture is getting to be, hmm, okay, I'm, I'm starting to get a little bit of the background, a little bit more of the details of who this is. But we now let's look at something else now. Let's look at this word devil. You can imagine this is going to open up a little bit. <laughs> right? So we're going to look at just a handful of passages that have to do with the devil and what the devil is according to what our Bibles would say. So here you can see I'm drawing a connector line for devil. And you can see it spans boxes 15, 16, 17, 18. 18 is connected to 19 and 20. Box 21 Box 22, box 23, box 24, box 25, box 26, and box 27. These all come and are connected to the serpent in the garden through the word devil. Okay? I should say this as well. The word devil uh, in Greek is diabolos. Um, you can imagine there's a lot of words that we, a lot of passages we could go to that mention the devil. We're not by any stretch of the imagination going to all of them. This is just a small sample. Okay, a small sample. The first one that we're going to go here, he is the tempter of Matthew 4.3. This is box 15. Box 16, he's the enemy. The devil is described in that passage as the enemy. And the reason I have these connected is because they all mention the word devil as well. Speaking of Satan, speaking of the one in the garden, speaking of the serpent. Box 17, he is the thief of good news. The devil is, uh, comes and steals the good news, the gospel, and that's in Luke 8, 12. Box number 18, the devil described as a murderer. John 8, 44. Now, as you're looking at your chart, you see that there's two smaller boxes connected under that. That's because that passage not only calls him the devil, not only calls him a murderer, but also has two other statements regarding this one. Liar and father of lies, or father of lying. Box 21 is the planter of evil thoughts. In that passage, John 13, 2. Box 22, he's an oppressor, the devil oppressing them. That's Acts 10, 38. Am I going too fast? Box 23, he's a spiritual terrorist. They're going, what? I don't remember that. This is the passage in Ephesians chapter 6 regarding the armor of God. Why do we need the armor? Because of the attacks of the devil. 
he attacks us, but he doesn't attack us when we want it to happen. He, he serves as sort of a terrorist. He's a spiritual terrorist. Ephesians 6.11. The next one, box 24, he's a spiritual hunter. Spiritual hunter in 2 Timothy 2.26. Box 25, he's the devouring lion. Devouring lion. All right, that comes from 1 Peter 5.8. The devil roaring, prowling about, seeking whom he may devour. Verse 26, sin from the beginning, from 1 John 3.8. Sin from the beginning, 1 John 3.8. In box 27, imprisoner. He's the one that puts us in prison. This is from the book of Revelation, and it's Revelation 2.10. If you read that passage, it talks about how some will be thrown into prison by the devil. So all these have in common that the devil is in those passages, used. that word is used in these passages, and further described in these forms. So that's why they're all connected to box number seven, devil. All right, so we've got devil. Now we've got Satan. And you can imagine how this is going to look now. Somewhat similar to what we just did with devil. They're all connected to each other, and then they're all connected up here to Satan. So all these boxes, 28, 29, 30. Then 30 is the one that's connected to 31 and 32. Then 33, 34... 40. You can see it's a little out of order, and you'll see why in a minute. 35, 36, 37, 38, 39. All of these passages are going to have in common that they're all connected by the word Satan. Satan's going to appear in these passages, and it is the Satan that shows up as the serpent in the garden. So all of this is to paint us a picture of who the serpent in the garden is. So filling these in, Satan is the accuser of Job chapters 2 and 3. And that's actually what Satan means. It means accuser. In fact, in Hebrew, the word is Satan. And in Greek, the word is Satanas. It's kind of a transliteration. The word has passed from one language into the next without changing much. Okay? So here we have two words obviously related, and even now in the English... There hasn't been an effort to change the word. It's just been to define who this character is. In the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, when it talks about Satan, it can be an accuser or one who withstands or one who stands in the way or stands against. And it can be somebody good or somebody bad. It doesn't necessarily always have to be the serpent that we're meeting now in our story, the one that's in the garden. There are other places where this word is used for others who stand in the way. For example, the story of Balaam when he's... Uh, on his donkey, right? And you remember there's the angel standing in the road, and the donkey sees the angel, but Balaam doesn't see it. And the donkey's like, oh dear, I shouldn't go that way, or else, you know, I'm going to die, and he's going to die. And the angel standing in the way, this word is being used. It's somebody who stands against, or somebody opposed. Now, by the time the New Testament comes around, Satan becomes, capital S, the proper name for this person of the Old Testament, who's the devil, who's the serpent in the garden. Does that make sense? So that word in the Old Testament, Satan, can be used in such a way to describe more than just this character we're looking at. So I'm only limiting to the passages that specifically refer to the character that we're meeting right here in the garden. Okay? And I should say this as well. There are 40 boxes up here. We're filling in 40 boxes. There's a whole lot more. You can imagine there's a lot more passages that would have to do with the connections to Satan and the devil and, and, and the dragon. Uh, by the way, these three alone 
have a hundred passages, over a hundred passages associated with those. All right, so we're just looking at 40, and you can imagine if, if we have time to go look at this Isaiah 14 passage and Ezekiel 28, it broadens quite a bit if you wanted to trace down every place that has something to do with the devil, or every place that has something to do with Satan, or every place that has something to do with the dragon, so that you can get a more complete picture of who the serpent in the garden is. So we're doing this as a representative sample, so by the end of it, we have an idea of who the serpent is. Eve didn't know all of this. <laughs> Eve, unfortunately, didn't know the guy's background. We're doing a background check right now is what we're doing. <laughs> all right? So here we are. We're looking at Satan now, and we're looking at the rest of these boxes. They're all connected by the word Satan. They all, Satan shows up in all these boxes. Satan is the accuser in Job chapter 2 and 3. Satan is the accuser. It shows up in Job chapter 2 and 3. Box 29 is the tempter of Matthew 4.10. And some of you might be thinking, wait a minute. Haven't we seen tempter already? Yes, you have. Box 15. He's devil and tempter are this one and the same synonyms used in uh, Matthew 4.3. And in the same chapter, Matthew 4.10, tempter and Satan used as synonyms. So you've got that connection as well. Uh, box 30, he's the ruler of demons from Luke 11.15. And from that passage, you have two other names associated with the Satan guy. Luke 11.15, if you read that passage a little bit before and a little bit after, you'll you find out in verse 18, 11.18, which we're going to fill in box 31 here, he's Beelzebub. That's 11.18. And then this one over here, box 32, he's the strong man mentioned in that passage. Strong man or strong one in verse 21. All right, so that passage has those three. Ruler of demons, Beelzebub, strong man, all connected to Satan in that passage. Box 33 is the thrasher in Luke 22, 31. That's my word, not the passage's word. Jesus says to Peter, Satan wants to sift you as wheat. Sifter? I don't think calling Satan a sifter really conveys what he's there for. Right? What a sifting was is you took, your, you took your grain that was on the threshing floor and you would thrash or sift the grain to get the good stuff from the bad. All right? So he's the thrasher there in Luke 22:31. We're going to put to a box 34, inflictor. Luke 13, 16. Uh, 35, he's the instigator of lies and greed. Might be thinking, what, what story is that? That's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Acts 5, 3, where Peter calls him on it. and says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? How is it that Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and hold back some of the property? You could have kept it all, right? Uh, box 36, he's the destroyer of the flesh. That's uh, 1 Corinthians 5 5. Box 37, he's a masquerader or an imposter. Masquerading as a, an angel of light. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. 14. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Box 38, tormentor from 2 Corinthians 12 7. Box 39, hinderer. Paul wanted to go and to take a message to a particular group of people, but Satan had hindered him. And then this one over here, box 40. He's the one that compelled Judas to betray Jesus. So, I'm pretty sure this doesn't apply to the people in this room because I know you guys well enough to know that this isn't, that there isn't a whole lot of new information here. 
But if this was your first time reading through Genesis chapter 3 in verse 1, and you stumble upon this new character of the serpent, by a, a search of the word serpent, it would lead you to a Bible study that would end up involving all of this. And again, this is just a small sample of the nature and the character of the serpent. Now, this is not intended to be an exhaustive study on who this character is. It's not intended to be an exhaustive study on his ultimate fate. It's not intended to be an exhaustive study even on his origin or his tactics or anything like that. We're just trying to get an idea of who this character is, the nature and character of the serpent that shows up in chapter 3, verse 1. And so here we see 40 different qualities that come out regarding the serpent that shows up in chapter 3, verse 1. Let's turn to Isaiah 14 then, with just a few minutes left here. And we're going to be going to verses 12 through 17. Now, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are similar in this. They start off by talking about a person. But they end up using language that's beyond what you would use when talking about a person. So Isaiah 14, if you were to start the chapter and you were to read through it, it's a proverb against the king of Babylon. It says that in verse 4. But a king of Babylon, if it's a legitimate person, the language all of a sudden doesn't seem to fit anymore by the time you get down to where our passage starts. Verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven. Is the king of Babylon fallen from heaven? That's kind of strange. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. Or some of your versions might say Daystar. O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground. You who weaken the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? So, like I said, when you start the chapter... Yeah, okay, it could apply to a person, but by the time you get to this part of it, you're going, no, that's not a person anymore. There's something bigger going on. And it's the same in Ezekiel 28, verses 11 through 19. We won't go there. I commend it to you for your further study. But what I wanted to do in today's study is just give us a more complete picture of who this serpent is. And even though he doesn't have much of a background that shows up in the passage we're in, we can connect the dots and find out directly, connection to connection, nature and character of who this serpent is that we find in the garden. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to spend time in your word. We pray that you would give us a desire that grows and grows, Lord, grows and grows to know you and to know you through your word. We pray that you would give us a hunger, Lord, that uh, just keeps us coming back. We thank you, Lord, for the many treasures that are to be found in your word. And God, we pray that you would help us, help us to be uh, growing strong in the healthy diet of your word that we would be useful to you, that you would find us uh, as good servants, and that we will one day hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Help us to go now, be a light in this darkening world. In Jesus' name, amen.